You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. Hi, welcome to this interview to be conducted by me and Dr. Louisa Slava, who's a reader in international law at Kent Law School in the United Kingdom. And Louise is also the co-director of the Centre for Critical International Law at that university. And you may know him too as the author of the award-winning book, Local Space, Global Life. Louise joins me this morning to interview our much admired friend and colleague, Professor Balakrishnan Rajagopal. Uh, Professor Rajagopal is a Professor of Law and Development at the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And he's also the founder of the Displacement Research and Action Network based there, which leads research and engagement with communities and NGOs, um, and I think local and national authorities around displacement. So Raj was educated first in India and then in the United States. And he's very well known for his research over two decades on social movements, international law and human rights advocacy around the world. There's a lot more that can be said about Raj and I'll leave you to follow the link to his extended profile in the description to this interview. But two things bear mention. One is that many of you will know him as the author of the 2009 book published by Cambridge University Press called International Law from Below, Development, Social Movements and Third World Resistance. And perhaps most immediately in May 2020, Raj took up the post of UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Adequate Housing. And it's with that aspect of his extraordinary trajectory that we'd like to begin this interview. So Raj, just for those of us who are less familiar with the UN system and the institutional structure of how things work, can you tell us something about what Special Rapporteurs are and what they're meant to do? Absolutely. Thank you, Sylvia and uh, Louis, for this great opportunity. And uh, of course, it's a pleasure to join both of you and uh, virtually to other people uh, now in the future. Um, the special rapporteur system is one of the unheralded, unheralded success stories of the you know international system in many ways. Um, um, partly because I would say that uh, it's uh, one of those odd uh, mechanisms which are both within the UN but also outside of the UN at the same time. The special procedure mechanisms are experts basically who are technically not UN staff. They're not paid a salary. They're not appointed representing anyone. They're not deputed by their governments. Uh, but on the other hand, they do have to be appointed by governments that are on the UN Human Rights Council. And uh, they do report to the UN Human Rights Council uh, and uh, they interact with governments. And uh, therefore it's uh, an unusual position uh, in a way. And I think you know that's where basically uh, the, the appeal of the special procedure mechanism lies. It's in that, that you know, being able to insert yourself into that uh, into that space between the state formal state system, on the one hand, and on the broader sort of the ecosystem of uh, both opinion formation of uh, public uh, you know attitudes as well as 
the you know uh, the social mobilization that underlies much of the push for the realization of rights, uh, whether in housing or food or you know a variety of other uh, rights-based issues. Uh, so rapporteurs and special procedure mechanisms really function like uh, like a voice uh, mm -hmm. of those who may have less ability to project their views or her have their concerns be heard in, a, in, a, in a, any meaningful way. And then for those who do have some voice, for example, there are movements that are more mobilized and more visible than others. Uh, rapporteurs, alliance with rapporteurs also offers a chance to amplify their voices. Mm -hmm. So crucial alliance building can lead to significant impact in terms of uh, both uh, you know, the making of new rules of international law as well as you know, offering creative interpretations of, you know, legal rules that, you know, kind of push the boundary in particular ways if there is a chance. Of course, the term being only six years, uh, three plus three, you, you, you won't get to actually, in most cases, see the impact of what you're doing. Uh, but, you know, uh, eventually the hope is that what you're trying to do would have some some good impact so so how so uh, how does that work in practice raj do you hold do you conduct hearings do you travel from country to country and write reports for various for the reception of whom well i took office at a very unusual time because of covid19 mm. uh when i took over in may covid was already you know uh devastating many countries and borders were shut down and travel was impossible. In fact, I could not go to Geneva, you know, for the for the June meeting or for that matter, for the, you know, uh, any other meetings. Essentially, travel has been frozen, you know, during 2020. And which means that not only that I am not able to go and do my annual reporting, which is twice a year, once you know, to the UN Human Rights Council and another to the UN General Assembly, but I'm also not able to uh, engage in country visits. Typically, you know, rapporteurs do two country visits per year, uh, but I've not been able to do any country visits, nor have any rapporteurs been able to do country visits during 2020 and maybe half of 2021 at least. Uh, so the way uh, I've tried to deal with this uh, all virtual world that we are living in right now, is to rely very heavily on interaction with networks, um, on discussions, on participation in joint events, in uh, mobilization and launching of campaigns, uh, global campaigns. For example, you know, we launched a zero evictions campaign with the participation of eight country-based networks. You know, last uh, fall. Uh, those were based on actual mobilizations that many social movements had been engaged in. But then the actual launch of the campaign had to be done virtually because of COVID. Mm. Uh, but it is based on the actual you know, work on the ground done by movements. Um, and eventually COVID will, of course, uh, taper off, hopefully, and we will be able to build on what we've been able to do. So, um, but in terms of um, interaction with social movements, civil society networks, that's how I've done it. In terms of interaction with states, uh, it's a little bit more complicated because there are two kinds of interactions that go on. Well, three kinds. One is uh, the formal reporting, which is 
you go to the Human Rights Council, you present your report, and you interact with states who formally, you know, engage with your report and either praise it or criticize it or whatever. And then the second kind of engagement that you have with states is uh, that you kind of interact with them as complaints of human rights violations come to you. Uh, people allege violations of particular rights that are relevant to your mandate, and you're approaching particular countries individually. Um, and the third kind of engagement with states is when you're engaging with states on policy issues, for example, that um, have to do with the new legislation on the horizon or or that have to do with, uh, you know, encouraging states that have done good things to tell them, you know, this is the way to go. And, you know, maybe, uh, so those kinds of interactions. So I would say at least uh, the, the, the first interaction has been very hard, uh, but the second and the third ones have been uh, quite possible. I've been surprised at the extent to which, you know, virtual interactions can in fact be in some ways be better for uh, doing the one-on-one uh, -on -one interaction, for example, that typically follows after a human rights violation is alleged. For example, in the pre-COVID world, you would have to request a formal meeting if you want a formal response, and there has been no response from the state for like two, three months, which is very typical. And then you're gonna, you just want to just call into the ambassador or something and say, you know, what's going on? You know, can we understand? You know, are there any particular constraints? But it's much harder to do that if you're going to do it, you know, one-on-one uh, -on -one in the pre-COVID world. But as I understand now, uh, there's a much more availability actually mm. to engage in that sort of sense. So it's a mixed bag, I would say. That's interesting. And so what what about the role of the special rapporteur on the right to adequate housing in particular? What's the what's your mandate? What are you meant to be um turning your attention to in particular? The special rapporteur on housing, you know, is one of the uh, kind of the earliest ones established in the UN human rights system, particularly on economic, social and cultural rights. Uh the first rapporteur uh, the appointment was made in 1993 after the UN Human Rights Commission recognized forced eviction as a you know, violation of human rights. Mm. Uh, and um, the, at that time, um, you know, uh, it was not a position, was not a full-blown special rapporteur for the entire human rights system, but it was for the subcommission. Uh, but then, you know, in 2000, it was kind of, you know, transformed into a special rapporteur on right to adequate housing for the uh, for the uh, Human Rights uh, Commission, which then evolved into Human Rights Council, you know, right. in 2007-8. And um, um, the, uh, uh, the, the main thing about the housing mandate, I would say is that uh, the housing mandate has become more and more relevant in today's world because of the greater degree of urbanization and the centrality of uh, cities uh, to uh, economic decision-making and globalization around the world. Um, of course, this is not a new phenomenon, but it was not something that, you know, people would have anticipated as much, for example, that Africa would be the most rapidly urbanizing continent 
by the 2000s is not something you sort of, uh, uh, you could say was one of the factors that kind of uh, uh, was at the background of the decision to create the right to adequate housing mandate. But for better or worse, uh, the increasing urbanization as well as uh, the, uh, uh, the type of uh, economic uh, uh, transformations that we're seeing in cities, particularly with the concentration of uh, capital, the, the force or the impact of capital-led transformations on physical space, uh, or what is sometimes called as financialization of housing, particularly in the housing sector. The Can you explain what you of, mean by that? The insertion of finance, particularly global finance, into the transformation of you know, spaces and of, mm. you know, of construction and building and, you know, both commercial, but also residential means that uh, you have a tremendous sort of, uh, you know, expansion on the one hand, because of the scale of finance is so enormous. The rapidity with which those changes are happening are incredible. So within say two, three years time, the entire skyline of, uh, you know, uh, cities changes dramatically because of the impact of this ready availability of finance. Um, and um, uh, this, these two factors, you know, the rapid urbanization, which is connected to deep structural problems with the abandonment of uh, farming and uh, with the inability of uh, many, much of the rural population to eke out a living, for example, from traditional ways of life, whether it's fishing or farming or other occupations has also meant a greater migration to the cities. Uh, the movement of the more larger number of peoples in the cities is complex, has many features, but overall what we are seeing is these two broad trends, financialization on the one hand, and then secondly, you know, the increasing migration from rural to urban, which means that housing challenges have really emerged as major, major concerns in uh, many, many countries uh, where, for example, if you go back to the debates around Habitat 1 in 1977, you know, or Habitat 2 in the 90s even, you know, much of the debate around housing was thought of really, you know, at that time as, you know, primarily, especially in the first Habitat, really something that had to do with the rich world or with the middle-income countries. Uh, so Latin America would be all very worried about it, for example, about housing. But you know, much of Asia and Africa would kind of see it, they would participate in it, but won't really see it as a central concern yet. But by the late 90s and 2000, things began to change quite a bit because of these two factors, the financialization and urbanization. Uh, factors. So you have you have a you, you have this this set of factors acting together uh, that has led to the increasing importance of the, uh, of the of the housing mandate. I hope that answers some of what you're trying to get at. At least a structural, you know, bigger structural issues that are driving, yeah. you know, the 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 the. Uh, sort of the focus on housing globally. Mm. Thank, thank you for that, Raj. And I'm just wondering if I can um, push you a little bit about the right to housing. So on the face of these two enormous challenges, 
it would be easy to argue that the right language wouldn't be up to the task. So what a right language can do with the financialization of housing as everything else, and what uh, the right language could do in terms of an enormous global demographic, demographic transformation. So other way of putting this is why it is important to think about housing in terms of rights at this particular point. Right, right, of course, that's a question in not just in, in housing, but in a variety of different, you know, difficult to transform areas where you're faced with structural changes that are happening that are too big for the rights language to deal with. But, you know, the thing about rights language as critical scholars, uh, you know this quite well, that, uh, um, you know, the, the thing about rights is that they promise too much, but they also promise too little uh, at the same time. So these two kind of are partly the, both the, the, the reason for the frustration with the rights language, but also in some ways, the reason for their continuing appeal. Uh, as you have this, this idea that uh, in the end, when all else fails, you have something to fall back on, or that uh, uh, in a different way, you use the rights language to convey demands uh, that may mean something other than what the sort of the official expert class that uh, you know polices the boundaries of what rights are about supposed to be about actually believes are possible. Uh, so the language of rights is kind of a, in that sense, an open textured sort of you know um, uh, uh, thing out there in which you can insert particular readings and meanings as you go forward, and we see it all the time, you know that uh, particular readings of uh, rights, for example, that are seen as uh, completely wacko, you know, impossible and so on, they actually turn out to be possible, but then just at the moment when they turn out to be possible is when you realize either all the compromises that had to be made in order to make it possible. Mm -hmm. And then the frustration yeah. comes after you've made it possible. And then you realize that the structural problems that led you to push for those changes haven't quite gone away. So that's why I said they promise too much, but they also promise too little. Uh, first, you think they promise too much, but then once you've achieved it, you think it promises too little. Um, and you you saw that, for example, recently with, the, with many declarations, the evolution of soft international law, you know, um, outside of the housing context, you, you saw that in the context of the declaration on the rights of indigenous people. Uh, both an achievement to be lauded, but also uh, the number of compromises that had to be made to make that declaration possible raised concerns about whether the movement was being co-opted or, you know, it was going to let go of its steam because it kind of achieved, quote unquote, you know, uh, a declaration which in turn kind of turns its focus off more revolutionary demands because they had to make some demands stick. Uh, and they did it by putting it into this declaration. And we saw the same thing with the Declaration of the Rights of Peasants, which passed the Human Rights Council recently. Uh, there were many, many demands, uh, some less radical than others. But then there are changes that, you know, in the back and forth between movement politics and state politics, you know, that is a space for some soft law negotiation these days. 
you find these kinds of compromises all the time. But so just to take you away from the, um, the intellectual account of the difficulties of rights, um, what, what would the right to housing look like? In, so I know that in Britain and Australia, for example, we've gone from uh, quite a lot of public housing in existence to the privatisation of the public housing and then the public-private partnerships that mandate low-cost housing. Um, and then in poor countries, there's a lot of slums that are being uh, provided with amenity um, in the name of a right to housing. So what, what does it look like for you in practical terms? Well, your question kind of captures the complexity of answering that question because uh, you, the thing about housing is that it, it manifests itself, the lack of an adequate housing manifests itself in different ways, in different contexts. Mm -hmm. And in some countries, it could be simply, you know, homelessness and affordability or lack of access to affordable housing. In other countries, it could be uh, massive evictions, uh, you know, repeated forms of mass evictions. And in other countries, it could be the persistence of informal settlements or housing settlements with uh, extraordinarily inadequate, uh, you know, conditions of life that uh, you, you cannot possibly say that uh, they, in any sense, you know, offer something called adequate housing. They're not adequate for any reason. And uh, in other countries, you have uh, more structural problems. For example, deep forms of spatial segregation and uh, ghettoization, where you find that uh, the separation of communities is uh, policed by you know, an informal sort of alliance between legal norms and legal forms, uh, both in private law, but also with uh, spatial planning equipment uh, apparatus, for example, master planning, and other forms of uh, planning uh, technologies that actually reinforces the separation between communities. That actually makes you know uh, their social and economic progress, for example, much less uh, possible um, because of the ghettoization and the deepening of poverty and uh, social exclusion. In, uh, in, in other countries, you have uh, other kinds of problems which arise from persistence of uh, low intensity or sometimes even higher intensity conflict. Conflict in turn leading to, you know, either people forced to flee their homes. Uh, for Venezuela, we are seeing that, for example, and either across the border or, you know, within their own countries, uh, people being forced to flee their homes because of non-conflict related stresses, especially looming very large is climate change uh, and the uh, reality that uh, millions and millions of people are currently already on the move uh, and their housing is not secure. Uh, uh, and the question of how to resettle them, for example, whether willingly or otherwise, is one of the biggest questions before us. Uh, uh, because the numbers that we're talking about are quite staggering, really. Uh, and the political and uh, financial challenges of uh, resettling these communities is, uh, is not small. Um, so uh, what right to housing then uh, looks like, to answer your question, depends on what kind of challenges we are facing in particular, particular places. Uh, 
But I, I believe that underlying all of this, still there has to be a, some basic sort of commitments to what a right to housing you know, is or should be. Uh, one is sort of a, a recognition of uh, the importance of the right to housing, uh, whether or not it is actually called expressed in a rights language or in some other form in law or uh, otherwise that actually guarantees a, you know, uh, an ability of people who uh, are, are the, uh, who are, who have most to lose from deprivation of the, uh, of the right to housing, uh, being able to say that we have this particular entitlements that we can fall back on. Uh, and, uh, 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 and these entitlements should be found in, could be found in a variety of different areas of law. I mean, it doesn't have to be only public law, for example, uh, or can be a mix of public and private law. Uh, but the second uh, thing, in addition to sort of finding a set of important sort of uh, guardrails uh, for ensuring that people have adequate housing in uh, formal legal terms uh, secured by uh, either public, private, or a mix of other forms of law that are informal or indigenous or other forms of legislation, what you also find is uh, a set of uh, sort of uh, economic arrangements uh, and uh, political arrangements that make these commitments actually possible. In other words, there's no point in, for example, having the most amazing quote-unquote right to housing legislation if you're going to have a neoliberal economic policy arrangement in that country that takes the gas or the wind out of, you know, any meaningful approach to providing housing, right? Uh, I can think of a number of countries, but particularly, you know, I can think of South Africa, for example, as an example of country in recent years where there is no shortage of very important you know, form of legal recognition of the right to housing in a number of different ways. But many of South Africa's structural problems emerge from the incompatibility between South Africa's constitutional commitment to housing as a human right, with South Africa's continuous and at the same time simultaneous commitment to a neoliberal economic policy. Uh, and, you know, they just don't go together. You know, so I would say the, the broader sort of structural things that underlie the rights language are very important for us to pay attention to the structural features of the economic, social, political, and cultural systems. And what is blocking the realization of rights may ultimately be factors that emerge from those factors. And if we don't address both of them simultaneously, then it's just you know not going to work. The right to housing is not going to work. Right, and, and what a privileged position that you have, you find yourself at the moment, that you are able to, to speak about both, to speak about the, those structural problems as well as the precise impingements on, on the right to housing. And what you, were, um, what you offer us was a very uh, fantastic overview of the, of the challenges faced by the right to housing and how we can think in a more creative ways from international human rights law uh, to us. I was wondering if we can move away from the right to housing for a minute and then go to social movements, which is also very important and, and central to your previous work and your current work. 
So we have been all uh, influenced by your book, International Law from Below, and it, um, it broke ground in several uh, respects. One of them uh, for us international lawyers very important is that you basically brought a different way of thinking about the sources of international law. Uh, you know, doctrinally, that's the, the, a huge contribution. Uh, but of course, the, the, the book was published um, a few years ago now. So I was wondering if you can share with us your own sense of how social movements have changed or how they have remained themselves uh, uh, the same or uh, what, what's going on with the nature of social movements today. Um, at least now kind of getting to 20 years of the publication of your book. Right, right. Um, well, gosh, it's been that long. Uh, 17 years, yeah, you're right. Um, uh, movements remain very strong, I would say, and their impact on rulemaking and rule interpretation on rule application has not diminished at all. As far as I see, they are happening in a multitude of areas. They're happening in public international law, in, you know, they're happening in conflict of laws, they're happening in, in uh, you know, environmental law separately, they're happening in a variety of different uh, ways. I would say that the real dynamism in terms of rule interpretation, rule making, and new readings and and outlining a new possible horizon of international law still comes from the energy of social movements. Uh, of course, in alliance with other critical actors, very often with states themselves, you know, in key locations, uh, but also with non-state actors uh, that goes beyond states. For example, increasingly, I see a great deal of alliance between movements and local governments uh, in, and networks of local governments especially in the housing mandate, uh, which is, I think, quite uh, exciting, especially as we rethink, for example, the post-Westphalian you know, framework, including you know, structures of quote-unquote governmental authority that goes beyond one, the idea that there's one single centralized authority in each territorially demarcated space in the world. Uh, seems like an idea that you know, should have been abandoned a long time ago, but Finally, we may be coming to that, but um, but the, uh, uh, the, the I think that one thing one thing I would say in response to um, reflecting on you know the twenty years or for seventeen years after that book is that uh, uh, the two things have changed. I think despite the fact that movements remain robust and they do have an impact, big impacts often on international law. Two things have changed. One is uh, the the political and economic context for the rise of the movements was quite different at the time when I was uh, writing it. Uh, there are additional factors that have made it uh, quite uh, different now. One is uh, the kind of the, the death of neoliberalism and the formal expiry of it, abandonment of neoliberalism as a organizing principle, a slogan. Although neoliberalism in disguise and in variety of other forms exist, uh, but uh, it is not an ideological slogan uh, that movements used to mobilize around. For example, in the 90s, uh, when I was writing, uh, and so the economic and political context is quite different. Um, uh, and one of the other, uh, uh, one, of, one of the, this is the economic context, the question on neoliberalism, but 
the political context has also changed quite a lot, as we know, with the rise of, you know, uh, uh, authoritarian populism, uh, flirting with variety of forms of, uh, you know, neo-fascism in countries around the world, uh, the rise of uh, hard right-wing populism in particular has actually uh, transformed the movement space in very fundamental ways, uh, both constricting the movement space and the ability for, uh, for movement alliance building, for example. Alliance building is such a key part of movement activity that when something that this dramatic happens with, you know, within countries, it really affects the ability of movements to be impactful and successful. Uh, so that has changed quite a lot. The second thing I, I think that has changed quite a lot since then is a kind of a return of a kind of what I would call as a kind of a sovereign centralism, a return of uh, a particular notion of uh, a hardline sovereignty that has actually uh, been accepted as a the legitimate or the more desirable feature of uh, of uh, governance in uh, many many countries around the world. Uh, this sovereign centralism is uh, something that is associated with, but is not a consequence of the rise of hardline populism from the right. I mean, this predates, for example, the rise of you know, a hardline populism from the right when so-called center-left governments were also practicing forms of sovereign centralism and treating any kind of criticism of their economic or social policy as being anti-national. This was happening already in many countries. So you couldn't criticize, for example, a refugee policy in a country and without being you being dubbed as, you know, uh, an enemy of the country and so on and so forth. Uh, and so uh, this form of sovereign centralism has got many, many deep roots, but I think this was not the context, uh, you know, in which I was writing my book. It was very different then. Uh, and I think, you know, I, I would see these as some of the primary sort of changes. And the third thing I would say is that there was also a sense of euphoria and a sense of, uh, uh, possibility about international law in the 90s. Uh, it was the uh, decade of the, the roaring 90s was the decade of international law when new institutions and new norms and new ideas about, uh, you know, world order were being put forward by, uh, by countries and by scholars for sure. But uh, uh, I think, you know, 17 years later, we are looking at not a, a, a uh, if international went into kind of uh, the ditches in the 70s and 80s, for example, you know, after the initial post-World War II euphoric moment, and then kind of, you know, had a revivalist moment in the 90s, now we are back in the ditches in some ways, in the sense of the sense of, uh, you know, the sense that there are darkening clouds on the horizon and, you know, uh, international law is broken and institutions are not functioning and and the space for inserting yourself into institutional you know environments to have an impact are much more uncertain uh, with the ability of alliance building becoming much more difficult now so uh, those are some of the changes that we see certainly uh, the neoliberalism 
issue from an economic point of view, the rise of, you know, um, uh, new, new, the, you know, hard, hardline right-wing populism. And then of course, uh, the, uh, the sense of euphoria about international law evaporating. So can I uh, uh, just riff off that? Because in a funny sort of way, the euphoria about international institutions was um, not really matched by a transformation in the teaching and study of international law at that time. And so people like you and Tony Angi and other members of the Third World Approaches to International Law Collective um, were very, very important in transforming international law as it's taught, studied and written about and researched. So just to follow on from Louise's question about asking you to reflect on what's different between the time when you wrote your book and now, how do you think um, students, uh, how do you think the study of international law has changed in those, in those decades? Because that feels like a different change than the institutional in a sense, the institution's breaking apart, but the study has gotten, from my perspective, more interesting. <laughs> right, right. And I, I agree with that. I think the study of international law has gotten very interesting. And I think the thing about study of international law is uh, that if we look at the first wave of toilers, you know, in the 50s and 60s, um, what they were doing had an impact much more on those of us who came 20 years later. Uh, not, so the contemporary impact was there, of course, but the contemporary impact was there not because of the simultaneous scholarly acknowledgement of the importance of what they were doing. They were often ignored by the mainstream scholarly community in international law in the 50s and 60s. They were quite marginal. But at the same time, what they were doing was very important in the 50s and 60s because it coincided with the political moment political moment of decolonization and the rise of new power politics, especially, you know, new forms of new coalitions of, you know, uh, uh, third world states in international law. Uh, uh, but I think, you know, what's, what's quite, you know, uh, interesting is that a lot of the work that was done um, in the 60s and 70s had a tremendous impact on those of us who followed 10 years, 15 years later. I think that's kind of the nature of much of scholarship, I guess, that, you know, you write something and then the real impacts might be 10, 15, 20 years down the road, not in the immediate, like you don't expect an impact in the very next year after you publish something, uh, including the path-breaking books that both of you have published. People will be reading those as we go forward and digesting some of these elements and and having that in sort of sort of uh, you know come into the teaching of international law is I think uh, uh, to me very interesting and I see that happening with much more rapidity, much more speed than I would have imagined really. Uh, mm -hmm. Twail has taken off as a scholarly movement much more actively than it has for example as a community of practice. Uh, as a community of transformation, for example, within conventional uh, forums of international law, uh, you know, and yet, and yet, oh, and yet, many of the special rapporteurs are oriented by Twail. If we think of uh, Obi or Tendayakumi or Michael Fakhri or you or um, 
So that's interesting as well. That's because... interesting, but but I I would say that the special rapporteurs as I see them really as both part of the system, but also being totally outside the system. As I said in the beginning, you know they're independent. They are not quite representing anyone, and they're quite marginal really in terms of the power of you know decision making. If you rank international law sites and in, and rank them in terms of power, uh, mm. this would not be among the most powerful. Uh, but on the other hand, you know uh, it's interesting that at least in these sites there is a constellation of us now inserting ourselves. And uh, even if we don't ourselves have, say, the authority of an ICJ, you know, judge or something, we amplify voices and we might actually, you know, uh, be able to speak on things in a way that actually provides more momentum for actual changes, uh, even if they're not quote unquote legal changes, but changes in the in the cultural meaning of law, for example, uh, in ways that uh, formal judicial decision making might not be able to uh, occur uh, or happen. So I, I do think that the central communities of practice, at least the conventional communities of practice in international law, uh, including the very large communities of practice that influence the cross-border movement of goods and services and businesses, and uh, they're all, as we know, know, structured by international legal rules. And the communities of practice that are involved in that are much less penetrated by by Twail uh, as a community, uh, but it certainly had a huge impact on professional societies of international law, on professional journals, on uh, teaching of international law in very important sites uh, like Melbourne, for example, or Kent and, and uh, many other schools that I see in Canada, but not just in those locations, but in many harder challenges being, how do you influence the teaching of international law in many you know, uh, third world countries where there is uh, often a greater resistance to introducing you know, trade scholarship uh, in teaching. So those are some changes that are happening. It's very encouraging. Raj, uh, keeping, keeping the, the trend of questions about how would you think about things now, the other big topic in your work is development and that has accompanied your early publications and continues to mark your current work. And the right to housing has changed, uh, international law has changed over the recent years. So how would you think about development today, keeping in mind some of those changes that you have uh, suggested before? Yeah, well, that's, that's a separate conversation itself. Uh, but, you know, the, uh, the changes, you know, in, in a nutshell, you could say, uh, you know, as I was saying earlier, neoliberalism as an economic idea, you know, is really, you know, has evolved into maybe other forms, but it's really kind of disappeared as an organizing slogan for economies. Uh, every other country seems to be committed to some version of, uh, for example, um, uh uh, populist spending, if you want to call it that way, uh, that 
especially now amplified by COVID. But because of the structural economic problems where we find uh, ourselves uh, and the enormity of the losses, the social and economic losses that have resulted from more than two decades of neoliberalism have meant that uh, the popular energy behind uh, you know, um, more uh, Keynesian or unorthodox economic policies has uh, really picked up momentum in many countries over the last uh, certainly you know a decade or so after the you know uh, global food and economic crisis uh, and the global housing crisis of 2007 2008 2009 and um, um, from that perspective development is you know quite different from what it was then you know when i was writing my book you know in the early 2000s you know neoliberalism was still the big dragon to slay uh, in many ways, you know, uh, in the 90s was a decade of neoliberalism, and we all came out of that. But, you know, by the end of the 2000s, you know, I think we are in a very different format. And the last 10 years has actually shown that uh, development is in a survival mode now. Uh, survival of both the those who are on, on the margins, but also the survival of the fittest. Uh, meaning the big tech companies, the big, you know, monopolizers who, you know, like to swallow all the small fish and they are the ones who are actually evolving as, you know, uh, as those at the top of the heap. Uh, and that uh, to me is a major challenge going forward, particularly as I said, in some areas of housing, like the financialization of housing. I mean, if global finance is a major factor, but the global finance is structured through, say, 10 firms, nothing more than that, you know, uh, the small number of mega firms that dominates the finance landscape can have very different implications for, you know, uh, uh, the way in which, you know, housing is structured around the world and the ability of governments to control the social and economic fallout from uh, poorly, you know, conceived housing uh, and so on. Uh, in terms of um, um, uh, the second, is kind of a second challenge in terms of development, uh, we could say that uh, perhaps all the critical work around post-development and subsequently degrowth has actually in some ways come to a head with uh, COVID where COVID actually ended up imposing economic contraction, not as a choice, but as a necessity, uh, because borders had to be shut down and goods had to stop flowing. While very rich have continued to make a lot of money during, even during the shutdown period during COVID, um, the reality is that economies have contracted uh, and millions of jobs have been lost and governments have been forced to reckon with uh, what you know, economic responses are appropriate when you have millions of people suddenly facing evictions. For example, in the United States, 40 million people uh, were at risk of eviction before, you know, uh, the Biden administration extended the eviction ban until the end of March. So what's going to happen until the end of, at the end of March when more than a year of back rent would be owed to the landlords and the landlords are owing their, you know, back, you know, mortgages to companies 
Uh, this is a debt that is ballooning enormously. Uh, it's on the horizon, and they're going to need some very hard-headed economic decisions you know, um, uh, in the coming years, uh, especially in the next uh, two to three years. And I think that this has been imposed on us because of uh, this compelled pattern of degrowth that, mm. uh, that uh, we have seen. The last thing I would say is that uh, both the climate change, uh, the challenges posed by climate change, as well as the downturn imposed um, by COVID have actually sort of centrally again put back on the agenda, the question of what exactly is the standard of living? You know, after all, standard of living in Article 25 is the provision under which the right to housing mandate is created. In fact, the very title of my mandate says right to housing as a component of the right to adequate standard of living. That is the formal title of the mandate. And we have to ask what exactly is an adequate standard of living? Now, when we held the Habitat One conference in the 70s, the adequate standard of adequate standard of living, by and large, I would say, for much of the life of the housing mandate has been thought of as a floor, basically. You want to provide minimum of what is required for people to have an adequate standard of living. So you look at people in informal settlements and you say, well, they don't have this or that, you know. So you want to make sure that they come up to what you consider to be an acceptable standard of living. But I think climate change, as well as COVID, have actually sort of raised some very interesting questions about, you know, the question of standard of living, not just as a floor, but as a ceiling. Um, how much, how much, how, how high should standard of living be? How high should an average standard of living be in a society for that society and that, that community to be considered to have, say, adequate housing? Uh, can we think about adequate housing both as a floor and as a ceiling as well? And what may be some of the implications of that? For example, for energy policy, for you know, financial policy, you know, for, for uh, financial decisions involving large-scale public debt, for example. What might be some of the things that we may have to think about? And I would, I would suggest that particularly the example of the COVID-induced, uh, you know, uh, enormous debts that are looming on the horizon, as I said, you know, after March, uh, we're going to have to think about these issues very seriously. Um, so those are some very specific ways in which I think development is being transformed and will be transformed in the coming years. We may have to just make do with a lot less and live much more adequately using that framework. That's a really uh, thought-provoking way of putting it, Raj, because in a way it puts a lot of flesh on the bones of the transformation of the development story from one of growth only to one of inequality. So I think most uh, thoughtful commentators of development and practitioners have increasingly thought about inequality as the decades have rolled on and the way that, you know, the early development Mark I in the West was to produce effectively an inequality machine. And now we're seeing the effects of that efficiency of that machine in a sense um, but the idea that the right to adequate housing should operate as a ceiling is really, really interesting. So I'm going to ask you a final question, which is going to be very unfair. 
<laughs> because I've been taking lots of notes as you've been talking and I've been prompted to think of many ways of asking questions better. Um, but if you were to think of our listeners, many of whom will be students and graduate students, and to think of your own mandate over the next six years, what do you think a person interested and involved in international law or law and development should strive for? What would be your takeaway about how we should strive to make the world better over the next five to ten years? A difficult question, but I'd be interested sure. to hear your reflections on that. Well, that's, uh, that is indeed a difficult question because you're talking about the people interested in international law and law development as well. Well, just a question now. about how should we, what should we strive for or how should we strive? Um, or, or if that's too difficult, what will you be striving for in the next five to ten years? Well, certainly what I will be, if I continue with the six years of this mandate, um, I have some substantive priorities, some of which I mentioned already, uh, alluded to, uh, on which I will be writing substantive reports. Uh, uh, one is spatial segregation uh, and the question of non-discrimination, which is also in the title of the mandate, but actually there has not been a full-blown report on non-discrimination with regard to housing yet in all these years. Wow. So that. I want to just take that on as a central challenge. Uh, spatial segregation as a particular manifestation of the emergence of what I and many other urban scholars have been calling as new forms of apartheid that are emerging you know, in cities and countries. And that will be the subject of my uh, next year's report to the UN General Assembly. Um, uh, I also alluded to uh, both conflict-induced migration as well as the relations between conflict and housing. And that is a broader question of both, uh, on the broadest sense, it is in fact the relationship between international humanitarian law and international human rights law, particularly economic, social, and cultural rights. Massive violations of economic, social, and cultural rights, for example, like housing or food. How should we think about them from the perspective of international criminal law and international humanitarian law? Um, and this is, is something that I want to really take on uh, as we also see too many countries, almost a third of the countries uh, in many regions of the world being affected by either armed conflict or low intensity conflicts um, involving criminal networks or others that leads to tremendous uh, negative impact on right to housing uh, and other rights. Um, then I also alluded to the question of climate change and the impact on housing. This is something that is visited uh, in a one report by one of the previous rapporteurs, Raquel Rolnik, in the early, uh, I believe, 2011 or 12. Um, I, uh, I think 10 years have gone by, and we are at a very different moment in climate change where the doomsday clock seems to be ticking faster and faster where we are and we know a lot more. And the research on climate change and housing has also progressed quite a bit since uh, 10 years ago. And I wanna sort of you know, engage with that in a serious way. So these are some broad uh, thematic concerns that I will sort of uh, be focused on. But in terms of uh, the broader challenges of how do you actually engage with law 
you know, and, you know, uh, in turn depends on, you know, uh, both the question of pedagogy and knowledge production, uh, where I would hope that the impact that people like you and the entire 12 network of scholars are having becomes more and more visible and is more and more impactful in terms of the teaching and the, you know, uh, production of knowledge about international law across a variety of frontiers so that um, the communities of practice uh, who are toilers becomes larger than what it is right now. And we need to urgently focus on that. Uh, so I, I, I would say that that's one area where I hope the emerging younger scholars or scholar, scholar activists or scholar mm -hmm. practitioners uh, I hope that's kind of an area where they see, uh, where, where we can see them contributing. The, uh, the other thing I would say uh, in terms of the broader impact on, uh, on international law is that, uh, um, you know, uh, I think that uh, there are, uh, uh, the, I don't see uh, any reason for uh, these communities of uh, newly emerging you know, scholar practitioners or scholar lawyers to actually be giving up on the idea of international law or law and development in any sense at all. In fact, uh, the field is rich with possibilities of transformation. And it's a question of where you insert yourself, the particular sites in which you find yourself, and then the modes of engagement that you choose to sort of uh, 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 choose to adopt in the coming years. So. I would say, despite all the some of the doomsday talk sometimes, you know, uh, about uh, how difficult it is to change things and and so on. In fact, it is possible to change things, uh, mm. but you know, um, uh, we need the energy of the young people to persist <laughs> and to make that happen. That's very inspiring, Raj. I always find your work to be. Um utterly uncynical, even as you're extremely critical. And I think that's that's a very um, inspiring dimension of your work in terms of the Gramscian edict of pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. I think you embody that for me really profoundly. And I'm very grateful to you for your action and energy in this role. So we should probably end it there. But just thank you very much from me and Louise uh, for agreeing to talk to us today. And I'm sure that uh, the listeners will have gained a lot from hearing about your take on the question of housing globally and what might be able to be done about it. So thank you so much. You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash illa podcast that's double i l a h podcast